Hello and welcome to the Lectionary Call-In Podcast. This is a ministry of Palmasia Presbyterian Church. This is a podcast where pastors and lay people gather together each week uh, to consider and reflect upon one of the lectionary readings for the coming Sunday. And it's our pattern here for a while to look at the gospel uh, lectionary text. It's also our typical pattern that one of us serves as the facilitator of the day. Today, that's me. And crafts questions and send those out to others in advance for their preparation and reflection. Uh, but this week is a little bit different. Uh, we're trying something new uh, with the uh, uh, item we're calling questions from the field. And so today's questions are actually coming from members of the adult faith formation team at Palmasia Presbyterian Church. Uh, we sent them the passage and invited them to, to consider it and send us some questions. And so we looked at those questions and picked out three that we wanted to to focus on today. And so this is going to be a nice treat to explore our own responses to questions from within uh, our church community. Um, and so we gather together uh, in this recording to um, share those reflections, to be in dialogue with one another. Uh, and uh, today, uh, it is my joy uh, to be joined by Bill Hall in St. Petersburg, Florida. And Sarah Mickelson in Tampa with a dog. <laughs> and I am John Ryder. I'm one of the pastors at Palmasia Presbyterian Church, and I am recording from Valrico, Florida. Uh, today, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at the gospel lectionary text coming up uh, for this coming Sunday, which will be February 11th. Uh, we're going to be uh, discussing uh, from the gospel of Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Uh, this is the Sunday that we celebrate uh, the Transfiguration, and this is a story uh, that appears in all three Synoptic Gospels. Uh, it's one that we read every year in the lectionary. So just like we celebrate uh, Pentecost and Easter and Christmas, this is one that comes every year. So we have the Transfiguration. This is an important story. Um, and it's one, I think, historically that sometimes didn't get a lot of attention. Uh, different traditions have given it more weight than others. Um, but it's a story um, that that uh, raises sometimes more questions than it provides in answers. It's a story that's filled um, with mystery. Um, the Transfiguration, as we think about it, we're, we're kind of wrapping up Epiphany. And, and this is a story um, that marks a moment where we kind of pivot from the season of Epiphany and we turn towards uh, Lent. So we've moved from these stories that um, we've had about Jesus being made manifest in our world and call stories that we've been kind of focusing on and some healing stories um, here in the last few weeks. And now we're starting to shift towards Wednesday, uh, Ash Wednesday, rather, towards Lent. And so we're um, in the transfiguration. We're, we're recognizing the identity of Jesus. Um, and we're now turning towards self-reflection, uh, towards self-denial towards Jerusalem and ultimately towards the cross. Uh, and so I invite us now to hear um, from God's holy word uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. 
This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we hear in this text, uh, Jesus, uh, at the very beginning, Jesus takes three of his disciples with him up the mountain. And so our first question is uh, just about that. Uh, First question for consideration is, why did Jesus choose Peter, James, and John, and not any of the other disciples? Or why didn't he take all of the disciples up there? Why why these three? And so uh, that's our first question from the field. And I will um, invite Bill to hear your response. First of all, I want to uh, uh, applaud the fact that these are questions coming from the field. I, I like that uh, change and applaud it. I, I will speak to your question, uh, but this first, uh, briefly, I disciplined myself to read the, all the other lectionary passages for this week, and I found uh a few sentences comment on all four from a scholar named uh, Kristen Stone King. She's a bishop, uh, a Methodist bishop, and a, a professor at a seminary. She says all of the texts this week deal with holy, transforming light. But they also speak to the awkwardness of waiting for and finally experiencing the light. Elisha's is a stop-and-go pilgrimage before he sees the chariots of fire. The psalmist proclaims the march of the sun across the sky while also waiting for the eschatological arrival of God's justice for God's people. The passage from Paul empathizes with the believers in Corinth who are having to wait and work to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And now Jesus leads Peter, James, and John up a mountain where they wait and are terrified by the cloud of glory that overshadows them. I I found that uh, connection helpful. Uh, I think it's fortunate, John, that Scripture does not answer this question. We're not told. So this is my imagination at work. I'm, I think if we had been told what the characteristics were, it could lead into our developing a bullet list of what we need to do or be in order to merit special favors from God. I don't think it was a matter of special favors, and I'll say more about that in a moment. <clears throat> in my imagination... Jesus chose these three disciples because he may have discerned that they needed to learn and experience something new about his message and mission. Interestingly, in each of these three accounts, the voice from heaven, what is the instruction the voice gives them? Listen. (laughs) Listen to Jesus. And later events in the lives of these three disciples will demonstrate how difficult that was for Peter, James, and John. So we have to acknowledge that we do not know and will not fully know why Jesus made this decision at this time. 
absolute certainty about this story's meaning is not possible. As you noted, it's in all three Gospels. And in each, the lead up to the Transfiguration's narrative is Jesus's declaration that his followers must deny themselves and take up their cross. And Jesus concludes by saying, outside of this pericope, beyond it, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And each of those synoptic accounts says that they were able to see, the transfiguration was seen. It's referred to also in the letter of Second Peter, first chapter, where Peter writes, we had been eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ's majesty. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the high mountain. Peter never forgot this experience. So for me, this event was one in a series of opportunities for these three disciples who became influential leaders to experience an unusual yet powerful dynamic of the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Bill. Sarah, what are your thoughts about the selection of these three? I will say that these three argue over who can sit on the left or the right at the (laughs) table in positions of honor. I will say that these three also um, answer the question on who do you say that I am? Uh, in Mark, that comes in the the chap the couple of verses before this one. So I see this particular experience as affirmation again of identity of who Jesus is, and a, a reframing of what does that mean? Because I think from the perspective of the witnesses, the disciples that witnessed this, Peter, James, and John, and even us, we see this as this moment of of something we can't understand, this moment of mystery. And then we're back to, yeah, you're just like us. And and I think this is perhaps a moment where they go, oh, hey, wait a minute, maybe we were wrong. Maybe he's not like us. And that's important, I think, to the story that Mark's unfolding. These are the same three that go to, to heal Jairus's daughter and see Jesus raise a child from the dead which I think is like, okay, so you're catching a glimpse. Here are some moments when you experience this. These are the same three that that go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him. So there's this sense of these three are singled out. Maybe they were the closest of friends within the group that Jesus had. Um, But maybe they were also... And and maybe you've experienced this when you've witnessed people who have leadership skills um, or, or who are prone to misbehaving. And you need to include them in, in what you're doing so that they are engaged. And, that, and I would say all that good energy is being deployed instead of stored somewhere in mischievous methods. So that being said, Brian Stoffergen um said that these are the ones who see the power to raise the dead. They see Jesus in his heavenly glory and they see him in his earthly agony. So it's this full, I would say, um, understanding or perspective or or, or witnessing. They can see the full spectrum of, of Jesus 
in his um, his actions and his his deliberate behaviors on earth. Um, why was it important that these three witnesses see the transfiguration? I guess is one of my questions. Um, how would seeing this experience or or having this experience better prepare them for what's coming? Um, and and who they might be after the crucifixion may be dependent on this moment. Um, each will be spreading the gospel, and this experience may fuel that outcome in a way that we can't comprehend. Um, you know, I think that we make allusions to this when we talk about mountaintop experiences, and we talk about the you know I think about those things where Jesus has gone up the mountain to pray, where Jesus takes the the team up to the mountaintop experience, um, that it's illuminative. And I don't mean to use that word in a pun, but I think that's valuable. Um, you change the perspective when you climb the mountain. You can see farther. You understand a little bit about the geography of the place around you. Um, it gives you the flexibility of... Um, a shift in how you imagine the next steps to be. I think this is invaluable um, for these particular three. And I think that's helpful to us. Um, I, I think that it's shifting their thinking about Jesus. Very good. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, I, I like this question. I think um, a lot of these questions we're getting today from the field. Um, in many ways, capture the mystery that's present in this passage, and that um, I don't know that there's an answer for this one necessarily, right? I mean, um, these three were the first disciples called along with Andrew, uh, which then my question is like, well, where's Andrew? Why is he not in there too, you know? But there were, there were some of the first ones called, um, so maybe there is some sort of inner circle. I mean, I think is, as you, uh, but, but maybe not, and um, but as Sarah mentioned, the, the, these three do appear with Jesus in, um, in other kind of key moments uh, in this uh, gospel. And so it's clear that they get asked to join in and be a part of kind of these other, um, other memories, other moments. Um, and, and maybe it's just a simple answer of from a storytelling perspective of retelling the story, it's easier to have three people represent the whole of the disciples, you know, that the disciples were there. But it's, the, it's I'm just going to tell you about these three that were there. But but mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think there is something about these three being there. I think ultimately they're invited to to be along, to be witnesses to what happened. Um, and even though they're told to keep quiet about quiet about it until later, I think they're there to speak to what happened and to share it. And as Bill mentioned, uh, Peter remembers it. I mean, it's it's brought up again. And so um, I think uh, there's also this tradition uh, that as I. I don't remember which commentary it was, but saying that there's in that in that world, there's um, there's this idea that two or three witnesses make something legally binding. So maybe having three of them there is to give some greater credibility to this kind of, um, you know, amazing moment that happened. But I think for personally for me, um, having the three of them there, their presence there draws me into the moment. If it's just a scene where it's Moses, Elijah and Jesus. it's impressive. Um, it's a neat story to me, and pretty incredible. We hear about this voice speaking about Jesus' identity, but it, it maybe is not as relatable. It's a little harder for me to imagine. But with the three of them there, 
now I can picture this moment um, of mystery maybe a little bit clearer. Um, their reaction uh, being one of awe and fear is one that I can relate to. And so maybe it enables me to kind of imagine myself in the scene, if you will, a little bit. Um, which then to me brings home that imperative command from the voice uh, in an even more impactful way, uh, which Bill mentioned too. Like, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. And so their presence there enables me to hear that charge to be silent and to listen to Jesus in, in a more poignant and personal way because of their presence being up on that mountain. Um, even though they struggle, and we see throughout the Gospel of Mark, they struggle to kind of understand over and over again and get it. Um, but this this moment with them being there makes it more memorable for me as the reader and more relatable. Uh, so um, we have this scene up there on the top of the mountain with Jesus being joined by Peter and uh, James and John. But we also hear that Moses and Elijah are present on the mountain as well. Um, which leads us to our second question, which is, what is the significance of Elijah and Moses as part of this experience? And Sarah, I invite to hear your response. Thank you. Um, uh, like Jesus, Moses was promised. And he's, he's a promised deliverer of Israel um, as, as the people are held captive in, in Egyptian hands. Um, he releases them from bondage, Moses does, into freedom. Moses receives the commandments or instructions from God. Moses spoke with God. And it's interesting um, to me that we see Jesus being the word, and that here's Moses receiving the word. Um, So I think that's an interesting tie-in. Moses is considered the most important prophet in multiple world religions that have Abrahamic uh, roots. So Islam, Christianity, and Judaism all look to Moses as somebody important. Uh, Elijah, prophet who listened to and spoke for God, heard, heard, heard God's voice while he was in the cave, uh, hiding, which I think is really important to note. Um, Elijah called the people of Israel back into covenant. So Jesus's role is, is an echo of each of these. So I think it's this really interesting moment where we see the, the instructions coming again from God through the hands of Jesus and the tone of voice that Jesus brings and, and the actions of Jesus. And we see um, the voice of God being the presence that we hear within the words that Jesus brings, bringing us back into covenant. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Moses often represents the law, and Elijah is often thought to represent the prophets in in the culmination that Jesus brings. He says, I've come to, um, I've come like the prophets and to fulfill the law. So Jesus is considered the culmination of both. So I think it's it's important that we have Elijah and Moses. These are also people that when Jesus says, who do you think I, I am to the disciples, these names come up. Mm-hmm. So I think it's an interesting moment of um, singularity in, in God's purposes. Very good. Thank you. Bill, your thoughts? Uh, again, a good question. I mentioned earlier that there's a connection between this 
gospel lesson and the other pericopes this week in the lectionary, one of which is from Second Kings, the second chapter. And it's obvious why that's included, because it's the story of Elijah's preparing Elisha to take up the prophetic mantle because Elijah was soon to be taken away. So that suggested to me in my imagination uh, a theme here that I will share. Uh, So Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, you were right, Sarah, Moses was a very famous figure as a leader. Elijah is a prominent uh, prophet. He is willing and enthusiastically engaged in the transition to someone else's carrying forward God's mission. It's an interesting dialogue, and there's some resistance. Moses also was a leader who eventually acknowledged and facilitated the transition to a new leader, Joshua. So I think it's at least possible that the thread here is that Peter, James, and John also would, in their time, need to learn the same lesson, that the kingdom of God did not end with them. Uh, You noted, John, for us already that these three disciples and the others stumbled and lost their way. Peter ended up denying James and John in that argument at the table of which was sit at the left and right and another account their mother (laughs) lobbies for them to be given a special place and perhaps Jesus wanted early in his ministry to implant in these three disciples the truth that in time they also would pass on to others the further work of God's kingdom on earth and uh, to apply, uh, one of the lessons Elijah learned was he thought he was it. I, even I alone, am faithful to you. And we remember God's response. 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal. There are in every age those who remain faithful to God's vision and purpose for life on earth. And I've said this to you, John, and to other younger pastors. As one in retirement in the eighth decade of my life, in the fourth quarter, it's exciting to know that people like you and others are taking leadership. So that transition is always an important lesson for us, not only to learn, but to celebrate. Very good. Thank you, Bill. Um, I, I think for me, the quick answer of why uh, they're there, what their significance is, uh, both of you have mentioned that Moses represents the law and Elijah as one of the first prophets represents the prophetic tradition. So together they kind of represent the fullness of the Jewish experience of faith uh, up to that point. Um, but I think they also kind of represent uh, different eras of history uh, and different expressions of faith. Um, Moses, um, in his time, was showing the people how they are to act and live uh, with one another, but also how they're to be in relationship with God. And so they were learning how to be uh, a covenant people, right? Um, 
And in the time of the kings, when they were ruling, the prophets helped to speak to what the kings were doing right, but most often to speak about what they were doing wrong, where the people had gone astray, right? Um, But they were guiding the people, I think, about how to live out their faith in community um, and in the wider context of the world around them. Um, And now we have Jesus here in this scene and kind of representing an era, a time in which Maybe you don't need anyone else to connect to God, to have a relationship to God. And so you can do that through Jesus Christ directly. And and we know we celebrate and say that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and of the prophecies um, that have been that have been given. And so um, I think there's this kind of having them all there represents all these things together, as you all have mentioned. Um, and it connects Jesus to a larger kind of ancestral history that's been um, um, given in, 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 you know, leading up to this. Um, but on kind of a, maybe a humorous note, but on a side note, I mean, we hear that they were talking together, talking with one another. Um, and so there's, uh, I think, an interesting level of equality. Jesus wasn't preaching to them. They were talking with one another, it says. And so, you know, when you talk with one another, you're you're kind of more on the same level. And so I think that's an interesting kind of choice of use of words there about them talking. Um, but um, my wife was also a pastor. We were kind of talking about this the other day. Like, I, I wonder, my, just, so there's some questions, you know, like, number one, how did the disciples know that it was Moses and Elijah? You know, they didn't know what they looked like. They were way before them. So, you know, how did they know that they were them? But then what were they talking about? Um, and so um, we don't know. There's mystery in that as well. But um, were they providing counsel to Jesus, support and encouragement for, as we, as I mentioned at the be- in the intro, that this is a pivot, right? We're turning towards Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry in Galilee is kind of wrapping up, and now we're headed to. So was it some words of encouragement about what is to come? Um, and then we were kind of joking about, were they comparing notes on followers? And like, oh, oh I, Elijah's really great, you know? He's a wonderful one. I can't wait to pass the torch to him. Oh, Moses could be complaining about how these followers didn't listen and built a golden calf, you know, and, and Jesus, I got these 12 and they don't get it, you know? And so, I mean, we were kind of joking about what they could be talking about. And um, I think the beauty of this text is that there are lots of questions and mysteries and things like that, that we don't have answers to. Um, there's mystery in the story, just as there's mystery in our own lives and in our world. And I think that's um, part of the beauty of that as well. So um, <clears throat> we've, got a final question, and it deals more with Jesus's words to his um, disciples uh, at the end there, and uh, that was that um, he told them not to tell anyone. And so our third question is, why do you think Jesus told them not to tell anyone until after he had risen from the dead? Uh, and I'll, I'll speak to this first and, and just say that um, this is this moment of kind of Shh, don't tell anybody, uh, is is not unique to this story. It happens throughout the Gospel of Mark. We've already heard about it in some of our healing stories just a few weeks ago. And um, uh, so there's this 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 thing in Mark uh, called the Messianic Secret. And so um, where, where Jesus doesn't want his identity as Messiah revealed. And I, I think one theory uh, that, that, that I can get behind is that it would bring about kind of the wrong attention from Rome um, because the people would give it the wrong attention. Um, and and I think for the people, their definition of, of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do um, is pretty clear to them, and they were ready to get Rome off their backs. And so 
um, they were looking, if Jesus was to be the Messiah, they had pretty clear expectations about what that meant um, Jesus would do. And I think uh, Jesus came to be, as we know, a different kind of Messiah for them. Um, and I and I think that part of the, let's not say it um, out loud right now, or call me the Messiah, or tell people about this, was they didn't want to have to deal with those incorrect incorrect assumptions and expectations that early in his ministry um, about who he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to, to do until later, um, and and then kind of as he moves towards Jerusalem. So um, I wonder about your all's thoughts. Um, uh, Sarah, um, what, what do you think about this notion that Jesus told them not to tell anyone? I, I wonder that maybe the glorification of Jesus can only be fully encountered or experienced at, with the lens of the, the sacrifice, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. It's like um, your your understanding of it shifts or is deepened or is is um, quadrupled uh, after you've seen how the story goes. Um, it's kind of like when you start at the end of the, the of a story and then you go backwards as, as a storyteller and fill in the, the beginning, the middle, and, and what came before so that you can fully kind of come to terms with what's about to happen. Um, and, and speaking about this experience without the others might only be one third of the story. Um, and, and if, you know, if, if, I guess it's kind of like being on the inside of a magician's trends, you know, something that a magician does and seeing the trick um, as something profound instead of what it really is, which is a manipulation of where the audience's eyes see. I don't know that that's anything about what Jesus is doing. I think that's how human beings um, perceive what Jesus is doing. And I think that it, it puts it in a bigger perspective, this sense of what is about to happen. Um, if they talk about what just happened, they're processing it and they're going to, it's going to shift or diminish its, its importance. Um, and I think it's uh, profoundly promoted in a way after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, and then you kind of go, Oh, this is much bigger than that. This is much bigger than I thought. And, and my meager comprehension of it diminished it until I saw the, how the story shifts and how the story begins to take shape. So I think it, it may be just, it's, they're not ready. What the words they would give to it would be um, diminishing rather than additive. Very good. Yeah, I think um, as we see in their response or Peter's response to, to let's build some dwellings for you, which is, you know, just kind of outlandish kind of a thing. I mean, I, I think there's some real truth to what you're saying about they may not be able to speak to what they've seen in a way that's helpful. Yeah, there's definitely something to getting the fuller picture of the story for sure. Bill, your thoughts. Uh, Sarah and John, I think what I'm about to share is similar to what I understand the two of you have already said, it seems to me uh, it, it is strange and mysterious for, from our perspective, why would Jesus not only hesitate, but clearly instruct them not to tell that. It occurs to me that Jesus may have given this instruction to avoid the human tendency to glamorize and exalt someone who does something spectacular. It, Jesus did not want that. 
We know that Jesus didn't heal everybody in his time. We've talked about recently how he is, in effect, wanted to avoid the crowds, to get away. So there, there was more to what Jesus wanted to share and teach than just healing, though that is critically important. He wanted to prepare the disciples to carry the message uh, and in turn to minister. He spoke about, in our modern-day language, justice, uh, serving those on the margin. So I think uh, I agree with you. There was more that was yet to unfold and understand. It also reminds me that in modern-day educational theory, there's the importance of readiness, timing. <laughs> and I can certainly identify with that in my faith journey. Sometimes it has been only after a life experience that I came to hear, understand, and embrace a particular truth of the gospel. Also, sharing such a story could be understood by others as a requirement that they also must have such experiences. Uh, John, I'm sure you have. I did in my ministry say to people, there are many paths to following Christ. You know, for some, it's dramatic mountaintop experience. For others, it's a quiet day-by-day experience. So, um, That's another thought that comes to me. And I think what highlights that reality is what happens after the transfiguration. In all three gospel accounts, Jesus walks down into controversy. The other disciples had been unable to heal this very troubled boy whose father had pled for uh, healing and Jesus heals him but there's a stark reminder and there's a work of art that shows both the top and the bottom the light at the top and the conflict at the bottom so uh, those those are my thoughts again excellent questions uh, adult education team keep up the good work very good thank you both Uh, I'm grateful for you all um, uh, being on the call. I'm grateful for your thoughtfulness and insights today. And as you mentioned, Bill uh, and Sarah, both were incredibly grateful for uh, the questions from the field. And so that was a delight. Um, For our listeners or viewers, we hope that these questions and our responses might spur in you uh, a desire to continue to explore what God uh, might be saying to you in this story of awe and mystery um, about identity as well. Uh, In if you have any questions, would like to share with us your thoughts, you can reach us at uh, lectionarycallin at pomacia.org. As we've mentioned, this podcast is sponsored. This is part of the ministry, if you will, of Pomacia Presbyterian Church. And we invite you to go to pomacia.org to learn more about um, this church, its, its uh, worship, uh, its programs, um, and its um, ministry in, in uh, Tampa. Uh, Again, we thank you so much for joining us and uh, pray that your day may be filled with joy and peace. Take care and God bless.